Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On July 4, 1921, in Chicago, a 12-year-old boy found a pistol in a car. The car belonged to his father's friend, and it was unlocked. The boy grabbed the pistol and ran to a nearby alley. Some kids were playing in the alley, and the boy thought it would be fun to scare them. He fired some shots in the air, and the kids were definitely scared, but one of them also screamed in pain. One of the bullets ricocheted and hit the kid in the jaw. The boy with the gun was sent to a reformatory for a year. It was the first major run-in with the law for Lester Gillis. After his release, 13-year-old Lester stole cars regularly and he got caught. He went back to jail for another year and a half. When he was released, he went back to stealing cars and he got caught again. Lester Gillis had been in jail three times before he was 18 years old. But all that was just a warm-up. He was a criminal on the rise. Soon he would meet John Dillinger, and then become part of Dillinger's gang. And eventually he'd have the top spot all to himself. He would become public enemy number one. But by that point, nobody called him Lester anymore. In 1930, he mugged the wife of Chicago's mayor on the sidewalk outside her apartment. She told the newspapers afterward, he was good-looking, hardly more than a boy. He had a baby face. By the time Lester Gillis linked up with John Dillinger, he was known as Babyface Nelson. From Black Barrel Media, this is Season 4 of Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer, and this season we're telling the story of the most notorious bank robber in modern American history, John Dillinger. This is Chapter 4, Prison Break. If I asked you to picture a meal that you could heat up in two minutes, you're probably going to picture a typical frozen dinner, one of those things that might look somewhat appealing on the box, but when you open it, you quickly discover it's less than appetizing. If that's what you're picturing, now picture the opposite. A meal you can heat up in two minutes that's always fresh, never frozen, made by a chef, and approved by a dietitian. That's Factor Meals. Restaurant-quality meals delivered to your door that require no prep and no cleanup. 
You just heat them up and eat them. There are 35 different options every week. They're healthy and approved for a variety of diet plans. And you get 50% off the service if you start right now. Go to factormeals.com slash infamousa50 and use the code infamousa50 to get 50% off. That's code infamousa50 at factormeals.com slash infamousa50 to get 50% off. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. John Dillinger didn't commit every bank robbery for which he was blamed. It was easy to pin robberies on him because he was famous and still on the loose. His name sold newspapers. So publishers speculated that he was behind every robbery, big or small. Sometimes he had nothing to do with them, and sometimes he was just on the edge of the job, like the robbery of the People's Savings Bank in Grand Haven, Michigan, in August 1933. It was hit by a crew of six men, led by a man named Lester Gillis, a.k.a. Babyface Nelson. Gillis was only five feet four inches tall, but he was a wild man. Not long after he mugged the wife of Chicago's mayor, he landed back in jail. But in February 1932, he escaped from Joliet Prison, and he didn't spend another day behind bars, which was tragic for many law enforcement officers. By the time his criminal career ended in a blazing shootout, the common refrain was that Babyface Nelson set the record for the most bureau agents killed by a single person and no one dared utter that nickname in his presence. The public may have liked it, but Lester Gillis did not. In August 1933, he looked like a regular John Q. Public when he walked into the People's Savings Bank. It was a few minutes before 3 p.m., and the bank was about to close for the day. Gillis strolled in with a picnic basket while the rest of his men fanned out across the lobby. He walked to the end of a long line of teller cages and slid a $20 bill across the counter. He asked for $2 in nickels, then $2 in dimes. Then he pulled a Tommy gun out of the picnic basket and said, hands up. Before the teller raised his hands, he was able to press a silent alarm. The alarm raced across the wires to multiple locations, one of which was a furniture store across the street. The owner of the store spotted the gang's getaway car, grabbed a gun, and aimed it at the vehicle. The getaway driver saw the store owner pointing a gun at him, and he hit the gas. When Lester Gillis and his crew emerged from the bank, they discovered their getaway car was gone. They shot their way out of town, and their comedy of errors continued. They commandeered a Chevy that only had a gallon of gas in it. When they were forced to ditch that car, they stole one that had two flat tires. Finally, the third stolen car got them home. Grand Haven, Michigan was the first real bank robbery of Lester Gillis, 
also known as Babyface Nelson, and it was credited to John Dillinger. After the robbery, Nelson's crew had abandoned a series of cars, not just the ones they stole during the botched escape. One of the abandoned cars had a driver's license inside. It belonged to a Fred Monahan, which was one of Dillinger's favorite aliases. Apparently, Dillinger had loaned a couple of his stolen vehicles to Nelson's gang. But even as babyface Nelson burst onto the national scene, Dillinger owned the headlines. The next month of his life was the wildest yet. In early September 1933, three weeks after babyface Nelson robbed the bank in Grand Haven, Dillinger made his biggest score to date. He and a partner entered the Massachusetts Avenue State Bank in Indianapolis and surprised the assistant manager. The man was at his desk, on the telephone, when someone said, This is a stick-up. We mean business. The assistant manager didn't believe it. It didn't sound real. In fact, it sounded so fake, he didn't even look up from the telephone. But when John Dillinger said, Get off that damned telephone, the man did look up, and he saw two things at the same time. John Dillinger at the top of a seven-foot-tall teller cage, and Dillinger's gun pointed at his face. Dillinger dropped gracefully to the floor. His partner held a gun on the customers and the employees and made them move over to a corner and lay on the floor. Some sources say the partner that day was Harry Copeland, who had been with Dillinger on recent robberies. Others say it was a man named John Vinson, about whom very little is known. The reason no one knows for sure is that the man used a handkerchief to hide his face. But whoever he was, he was nervous. As Dillinger moved from cage to cage collecting money, the accomplice waved his weapon around and urged Dillinger to hurry up. Dillinger went to the vault and began throwing sacks of money over the cashier's cages. His partner caught them on the other side and added them to the pile of loot. When the men were done, they hauled more than $24,000 out of the bank. That would be worth more than $450,000 today. It was the second largest bank robbery in Indiana state history. The size of the score was pure luck. Dillinger and his partner happened to rob the bank while it held the payroll for the real Silk Hosiery Company. But even though Dillinger had just stolen a small fortune, he proved once again that he was not the type of crook to sit back and spend his money and then pull another job when he ran low. No, he was on a roll and he wanted to keep it going. But now it was time to start on another project. He wanted to get his old buddy Harry Pierpont out of prison. They had served nine years together, beginning in the juvenile reformatory before they were both transferred to the adult prison at Michigan City. Dillinger first tried to work the system. He tried bribes and other forms of influence to get Harry released, but none of them worked. That left him just one last option. He was going to stage a prison break. Dillinger still wanted to assemble a dream team of professional bank robbers. But there was one major obstacle in his way. The whole team was in prison. Luckily, though, 
they were in the same prison. So instead of just breaking his friend Harry Pierpont out, he would bust out the whole gang. A thing of this size needed a serious plan, and Dillinger and Harry Copeland got right to work. They began by working backward. Dillinger realized that most criminals who wanted to escape from prison spent so much time planning the breakout that they failed to plan for its success. What would they do if they actually made it? Dillinger knew that if the escape was successful, the men would need a place to hide. He went to the sister of one of Harry Pierpont's former partners. The young lady had been exchanging letters with Harry while he'd been in prison. She considered herself his girlfriend on the outside. She lived in Indianapolis, and Dillinger brought her cash from his latest robbery and told her about his plan. She would need to shelter as many as 14 men in her home, and they would all need new clothes. She eagerly agreed and promised she'd be ready. Next, Dillinger bought three 38 automatic handguns and spare clips and extra ammo. He and Copeland wrapped the guns in newspaper and then in cloth. They coated them in roofing tar and rolled them in sand to make them look like rocks. They drove to Michigan City late at night and parked several blocks away from the prison. They cautiously walked up to one of the walls, which was 25 feet high. They tried to throw the packages over the wall, but it was no easy task. It took multiple attempts, but finally, each package landed inside the prison. Now there were three guns disguised as rocks lying on the grass, waiting for Dillinger's friends to pick them up. And somehow, the disguise worked. The next morning, a prison guard walked through the yard before the inmates were allowed out of their cells. He missed the strange-looking rocks. A little after 6 a.m., the inmates walked outside. A convict soon discovered the packages, but apparently he was the exact wrong person to make the discovery. No one knows who he was, but when he noticed the odd-looking rocks, he asked a friend to guard them while he ran away to get the deputy warden. And that was the end of the old disguise the guns as rocks trick. Dillinger and the gang inside needed a better strategy. They needed a guaranteed way to get the guns into the hands of the right men. From his prison cell, Harry Pierpont devised a new plan. But it would take time to execute. Dillinger didn't know it yet, but he was running out of time. In the weeks leading up to the failed escape attempt, Dillinger's girlfriend of the moment, Mary Jenkins Longnecker, tried to get in touch with him. They'd had a great time at the Chicago World's Fair over the summer, and Dillinger was hot to marry her. But now Mary had trouble contacting her sweetheart. She wanted him to come visit her new apartment in a boarding house in Dayton, Ohio. She sent letters to all his known addresses, but they all came back marked Return to Sender. Finally, she found an address that worked, and Dillinger promised he would visit soon. But before that happened, Mary and her brother accidentally gave away the secret. Mary's brother was James Jenkins. James was one of Dillinger's friends in prison, 
he was one of the men Dillinger wanted to break out. And unfortunately, he connected the dots between Dillinger and his sister. The police had received a tip that Mary was dating Dillinger. When they learned that Mary's brother was friends with Dillinger in prison and that her brother was still in prison, they started monitoring James's mail. And that's how they learned Mary's location. When Mary wrote a letter to James, she put her new address on it, the address in Dayton, Ohio. It turned out that Mary's new apartment was only one block from the Dayton police headquarters. The police immediately sent two detectives to her boarding house, and they found a letter from Dillinger. The landlady of the house said that Dillinger wrote letters to Mary all the time. The lady offered to call the police the next time she saw one. A few days later, Dillinger sent a letter to Mary saying he was coming for a visit, and the landlady quickly called the police. On the night of September 22nd, Dillinger drove into Dayton, Ohio to see his girlfriend. Some sources say the detectives who were watching Mary's apartment chose that night, of all nights, to take a break from surveillance and sleep at home. Other sources say they actually ended their surveillance that day and returned to desk duty. They were convinced Dillinger would never show up. Whatever the reason, there were no police at the boarding house when Dillinger arrived around midnight. He parked his Essex Terraplane, went inside, and went upstairs to Mary's apartment. The cops may have missed him, but the landlady of the boarding house did not. She called police headquarters. She told them Dillinger was there. By 1.30 in the morning, the boarding house was surrounded by police. The two detectives who had abandoned their stakeout earlier in the day were back at the scene. One had a Tommy gun. The other had a 12-gauge shotgun. They met the landlady at the back door. She led them up to Mary's room. She knocked on the apartment door and identified herself. Mary Longnacker cracked the door open and the police burst inside. John Dillinger stood in the middle of the living room wearing an undershirt and gray dress pants. He had been looking at some of the photos that he and Mary had taken at the World's Fair a couple months earlier. Now he had a shotgun pointed at his chest and he had no choice but to give himself up. The police searched Mary's apartment and found eight handguns. In Dillinger's car outside, they found ammunition, a sack of nails, and $2,600 in cash. When the cops took Dillinger and Mary to the station for questioning, Dillinger received his second surprise of the night. A man named Claude Constable had also been brought in. The police thought he was part of Dillinger's gang. But then Mary was forced to reveal she was having an affair with Claude. She had grown tired of waiting for Dillinger, so she began a relationship with her neighbor. If Dillinger found out about the two lovers, he never commented on them, and Mary and Claude were released after questioning. Dillinger did comment on the bulletproof vests worn by the detectives during his arrest. He asked if they were any good. The detectives said they didn't know, but they felt safer with them on. Then they asked what Dillinger thought of the vests. Dillinger grinned and said, I put three steel-jacketed slugs through one not so long ago. Only in practice, of course.
my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now. But I realize what's at home. Oh, no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get pet essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try. John Dillinger stood in multiple lineups at the police station. Witnesses positively identified him as the man who committed numerous robberies. But ballistic tests failed to connect Dillinger's weapons to those used in the robberies. There was also a problem with the money. $2,600 had been found in Dillinger's car, but the police couldn't tie it to a robbery, so they were forced to turn it over to Dillinger's lawyer, along with the outlaw's most prized possession, his Essex Terraplane. Dillinger was scheduled to appear in court in about a week. But while he sat in jail in Ohio, his friends in the Indiana State Pen made a daring escape. At nearly the same time that Dillinger was being processed in Dayton, Ohio, a crate arrived at the Indiana State Penitentiary in Michigan City, Indiana. It was from the Henry Meyer Manufacturing Company of Chicago, Illinois, and it was destined for the Gordon East Coast Shirt Factory inside the prison. Many such crates arrived for the men who worked in the prison's shirt shop, but this one was special. Buried inside the crate were three guns from John Dillinger. A civilian inspector checked the crate for contraband, but it was only a cursory glance. He cut a small hole in the crate and verified that it contained thread for shirts, and then he let the crate pass into the prison. Walter Dietrich, one of the protégés of bank-robbing legend Herman Lamb, opened the crate and found the three 38 caliber pistols. He quickly transferred them to a carton of buttons. Then he advised Harry Pierpont the guns had arrived. This was the plan Dillinger and Pierpont had organized. And three days after the guns arrived, the men in the shirt factory put the plan into action. On September 26, 1933, 10 men began the prison break. They were originally supposed to break out two days later, but after the guns arrived, Harry Pierpont decided they couldn't wait any longer. The risk was too high. They could be discovered at any moment. And he was right. Informants already knew of the gang's intent to escape, but maybe not the specific plan. Either way, the informants told prison officials 
and the officials were waiting to catch the shirt shop crew in the act. But when the crew started the plan two days early, it caught everyone off guard. It happened after lunch on the 26th. Walter Dietrich told the superintendent of the shirt factory that two convicts wanted to buy new shirts. Dietrich and the superintendent walked to the storeroom to get the new shirts, and then nine more convicts ambushed the superintendent. Three of the nine held the smuggled guns. They kept the superintendent under control while Dietrich went back out into the factory to get the next guard. Dietrich found the day captain and told him he had just discovered a jug of wine in the storeroom. The captain followed Dietrich to the room, and he was ambushed just like the superintendent. Harry Pierpont held one of the smuggled guns, and he hated the day captain. He took great pleasure in jamming the gun into the captain's gut and forcing him into the room. Moments later, another guard and five more convicts, who were not part of the breakout, walked up to the storeroom. The escapees locked the guard and the convicts in a heating tunnel and moved on to the next stage of the plan. The ten inmates grabbed bundles of shirts. They formed a line at the factory door. They put the superintendent in the front and the day captain in the back. They opened the door and began marching through the yard. To the men in the watchtowers, it looked like a routine activity. Two guards were escorting a group of prisoners from one place to another. The prisoners all carried shirts, which made sense because they had just come from the shirt factory. The gang made it safely across the yard, and that's where the routine activity stopped. There were two gates between the yard and the administration office. The guard at the first gate began to open it, but instead of staying cool and keeping with the plan, one of the inmates kicked the gate open. Another hit the guard and grabbed his keys. The gang forced its way through the second gate and into the office. Then the coordination totally broke down. The convicts fired their guns and fought the admin staff. A county sheriff had just dropped off a prisoner and his new Chevy sat right outside. Walter Dietrich, James Clark, the other protege of Herman Lamb, and two more inmates grabbed the sheriff and forced him out to his car. They sped away from the prison and left Harry Pierpont and the rest of the gang to find their own ride. Pierpont led five men across the highway to a gas station. They found the manager and demanded the keys to a car. Instead of giving them the keys, he ran. They fired three shots at him, but he escaped unharmed. Then the convicts saw an Oldsmobile driving down the highway. They flagged it down, and when it pulled over, they forced two women out of the car. The six criminals piled in and ordered the man behind the wheel to drive. Fifteen minutes later, they kicked him out too. While the two groups of escapees fled the area around the prison, first responders arrived on the scene. Police, firefighters, and a unit from the Naval Reserve descended on the prison to secure it from a riot. But there was no riot. There had been a fight in the admin office, but all the convicts involved had escaped. Everything else had returned to normal. 
Of the escaped convicts, Harry Pierpont's crew had decent luck. In their hijacked car, they made it 18 miles outside Michigan City before they stopped. They drove up to a farm and surprised the farmer and his family. They told him they were escaped prisoners and they were going to hide at his farm until it got dark. And they did. Meanwhile, Walter Dietrich's crew was struggling. After they sped away from the prison, they had taken a wrong turn down a dirt road that went nowhere. It was muddy, and their getaway car got stuck. They forced a farmer who lived nearby to drive them toward Gary, Indiana, about 30 miles east. Around 5.30 that evening, while Pierpont's boys were safely tucked away at the farm, Dietrich's group blew a tire. They ordered the farmer to keep driving, which caused the entire wheel to break off. Now, Dietrich, James Clark, two other inmates, the farmer and the sheriff, were on foot. At one point, they crossed a creek and one of them slipped and fell. The farmer took advantage of the situation and ran away, but the gang still had the sheriff as a prisoner. As they began their slow trek west toward Gary, Indiana, the other group of escapees was about to begin its journey south to Indianapolis. At the farm, it was now dark, and it was time for Harry Pierpont and his team to leave. They swapped the license plates of their getaway car for the plates of the farmer's car. They also cut his gas line and took his keys so he couldn't follow. The farmer didn't have a telephone, and the convicts told him and his family to stay in the house for 15 minutes after they were gone. Then the inmates drove away. The family waited 20 minutes, and then one of them ran to a nearby house and called the local sheriff. But by that point, the convicts were long gone. It was after midnight when Mary Kinder opened her door in Indianapolis to find her newly escaped boyfriend, Harry Pierpont, and his five cohorts. She was surprised to see them. They weren't expected for another 24 hours. And as she looked at the group, she was disappointed to see that her brother wasn't with them. There should have been 11 men in the escape, but Mary's brother was in the infirmary when Pierpont and the others decided they couldn't wait any longer. And Mary had another problem. There were people in her house. She couldn't let six escaped convicts inside. Oh, and there was more bad news. Dillinger was in jail in Ohio. This was not the welcome home Harry Pierpont had been expecting. And it was about to get a little more awkward. While Mary Kinder considered herself Harry's girlfriend, and Harry certainly thought of her that way as well, Mary had also been dating a local guy in the city. Now Mary had to scramble to find the inmates a place to hide, and she took them to her other boyfriend's house. Against all odds, there were no problems with the arrangement. The next morning, Dillinger's bank-robbing partner, Harry Copeland, arrived with a generous bankroll that Dillinger had left in his care. Copeland assured the men he'd have a proper hideout for them very soon. When it was dark, Pierpont and his crew left Indianapolis and headed for Ohio. Their escape had been a cakewalk compared to the other men from the shirt factory. Walter Dietrich's small group was still on foot, sleeping in the woods and eating stolen vegetables. 
James Clark, Diedrich's partner from Herman Lamb's gang, had severe ulcers, and the diet wreaked havoc on his insides. He was slowing them down. They were still moving in the direction of Gary, Indiana, but Dietrich had to make a choice. He chose to leave James Clark behind with the sheriff who had been kidnapped at the prison. Dietrich and the other two convicts continued their escape. Clark and the sheriff eventually straggled into Gary, Indiana, and then the convict and the sheriff parted ways. The sheriff's ordeal was finally done. Clark waved down a cab to take him to Joliet, Illinois, about 45 miles away. But the cabbie was suspicious of Clark, and he called the police. James Clark was back in jail just a few days after his escape. Shortly thereafter, Indiana State Police Captain Matt Leach told reporters that the escaped inmates were all part of a gang led by John Dillinger. He warned that if Dillinger were sent back to Indiana, the gang would definitely try to break him out of jail. Leach was mocked, and his warnings were ignored. But as it turned out, he wasn't that far off. Next time on Infamous America, Dillinger's gang busts him out of jail, and they head for the center of crime in the Midwest, Chicago. But the police are hot on Dillinger's trail. They use an informant to lure him into a trap, and they arrive in the middle of one of his robberies for the first time. That's next week on Infamous America. This season was written by Sean Puglisi and myself. Music editing and sound design by Mike Hissong at Sneaky Big Studios. Artwork by Matt Lockery of My Colorful Past. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please visit our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, for more details and join us on social media. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And if you want to contribute to the production of our shows, please visit our Patreon page. You can also find discounts on our merchandise. That's patreon.com slash Black Barrel Media. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.